following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. A couple of weeks ago, we started a new series in the evening looking at parables or stories that Jesus told from Luke's gospel. And we've got a really interesting one this evening that we're going to be learning from together. We are going to turn to God's Word now. And the reading is from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 15, which is on page 1049. And Miller is going to come and read that for us. So I'll hand over to her. Um, The parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 liters of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Wonderful. I'm going to hand over to Ed, who's going to teach us from this passage. Fabulous. Let me, let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these parables, these amazing stories that Jesus told. And uh, Lord, give us insight into what you would have us learn about you, learn about ourselves uh, through this particular parable. Uh, Lord, please change us. Please mold us as we spend time in this now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know if any of you have uh, watched this film coming up. Does anyone know this? 
Uh, anyone watch this? I'm astonished to learn it is 21 years old as a film. 2002. I honestly thought it was, came out about three years ago. Um, and uh, Catch Me If You Can, it's a um, it's a good film, actually. It's a good film. Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks. And it is a film about a, a con man. Uh, this guy, whose name is at the bottom there, Frank Abagnale. And uh, this chap, we'll call him Frank. Uh, he's a con man, and it's based on a, on a real-life story. And he basically, by the age of 19, he claimed that he had made millions of dollars through pretending to be a number of different things. One, pretending to be a Pan, Pan Am. It used to be an American airline. I don't know if it's still around. It's still going, Pan Am. Um, anyway, it used to be an American airline. He pretended to be a Pan Am pilot. He pretended to be a doctor. He pretended to be a lawyer. And uh, he was a con artist. And uh, he made lots of money out of it. He was a complete scoundrel. He ended up being caught uh, by Tom Hanks. Um, well, his character, at least and um, spent time in jail. But it's, it's, when you watch this film, what is striking about it is you know this person's a scoundrel, and yet there are some aspects about him that you just admire. Uh, there is something about this guy, Frank, that is uh, really admirable. His charm, his ingenuity, his courage, uh, all those things come out, even though he is a scoundrel. Now, the point here I want to make right at the front is that it's possible to look at a scoundrel and still admire and commend them for some part of who they are. Uh, that's not to say you commend the whole of them. Uh, this chap, Frank, he was a con man. He rightly went to jail. Uh, but you can still admire part of it, commend them for part of who they are. I mean... Don't want to get too political here, but Donald Trump. I don't know what you think of Donald Trump. Uh, but whether you like him or loathe him, um, even if you uh, really loathe him, uh, there's still some things about him. You have to, I mean, he has energy at the very least. 77, still going, strong. Um, so someone can be a scoundrel, and yet you can admire an aspect of them. And I think that is really important for us to get clear in our head when it comes to this parable, because this parable, I don't know if we had this, as we had this read, you might have thought, gosh, this is a bit odd. It feels a bit perplexing. Is Jesus commending terrible behavior here? Um, this dishonest manager. Is Jesus saying, you want to be a bit like this person? Uh, one person uh, I read, speaking of this parable this week, said it's the most difficult of Jesus' parables uh, in Luke. And I think it can cause a lot of confusion, but my sense is that we would do well to see this and to see what Jesus is saying here in a similar way to how we talk about the film Catch Me If You Can and uh, that chat, Frank, uh, that we can commend one specific aspect of this person's actions without commending the whole. And actually, Jesus does this in a number of different places. One example, Matthew 24, he likens himself to a thief in the night. Uh, he said, the Son of Man will come back like a thief in the night. Now, that's not Jesus saying there that um, he's a thief, uh, that he's going to come back and start sort of taking what doesn't belong to him, uh, that he's going to start trespassing on other people's 
territory, nor is Jesus there commending being a thief, saying, you know, you want to be like a thief because I'm likening myself to a thief. Uh, what Jesus is saying there is there's one aspect of the thief that he's saying is a bit like what he is. And that, in this particular context, in Matthew 24, is the surprise with which the thief turns up. Uh, Jesus speaking about himself returning uh, to bring about the end of this world, to bring about uh, the day of judgment, and it'll, he'll be like a thief. In other words, it'll be a surprise. You don't expect uh, him to return. So uh, Jesus is looking at one aspect, I think. He's commending one aspect of this manager. Now, let's just go through the parable itself and um, see what uh, it's all about. Let's sort of run through it. So, um, and then we'll think specifically, what is it that Jesus is commending about this person? So this parable, we, we've got two people. We've got a rich man, and uh, this rich man has a manager, and this manager is a terrible manager. He's a really awful manager, wasting the resources of his boss. And so the boss calls him in for a meeting, and he says, look, what is going on here? What are you doing? And presumably he had a bit of conversation, and then he did the Alan Sugar moment, you're fired. He fires him. Uh, but this person presumably has a bit of notice to work off, and uh, as this is beginning, the manager uh, is thinking through his predicament, verse 3. And he's thinking it through, saying, look, I'm about to be out of a job. How am I going to live? What's going to happen? What's my future going to look like? Um, I can't do manual labor. That might be one option, but you know, I've been a manager for, maybe he's been a manager for years and years and years, and he's just not strong enough to do uh, a manual job. Um, he doesn't want to beg, rely on the charity of others. He'd find that too shameful. So he then has an idea. So the lights switch on. He's got a plan. Um, and what he does is to serve his notice period, and through this opportunity he works out how he can make friends for after the time he leaves his job. Uh, verse 4 speaks of that. He says, I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their house. Houses. So what does he do? Well, um, he calls in those who owe his master money. Uh, verse 5. Uh, so he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. By the way, this is a lot of olive oil, 3,000 litres of olive oil. Uh, that is about the amount of olive oil 150 olive trees would produce in a day. Uh, 100 baths of oil uh, is another translation of that. Effectively, three years' wages for a day labourer. Three years' wages. That's a lot of money uh, this person owed. And so what does the manager do? Well, uh, second half of verse 6, he says, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. He just halves it. Straight off. He's very happy with that, clearly. Then he calls the next person in, verse 7. Uh, How much do I owe you to the second person who owes debts to his boss? A thousand bushels of wheat. That's a lot of wheat, 30 tonnes of wheat. Uh, that's about eight to ten years' wages of a day labourer, so even more. And he knocks off 20% from it, verse, end of verse 7. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. 
And then the idea, presumably, is that debtor after debtor after debtor comes to this manager and he keeps cutting them deals and becomes very popular with it. And then here's the shock, verse 8. It's quite a shock. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He commended him. What? Why on earth is the boss commending this guy is just fired for what he did? It seems really, really strange. And uh, different people have put out all sorts of different ideas to try and make sense of what the boss is doing here, the rich man is doing here. Some people suggest that actually he's commending his manager because it actually makes the master appear really generous. And he thinks, well, you know, I'm being made to look generous. But I don't think that's quite the sense of this parable. Uh, If you have a look at verse 6, you know, take your bill, sit down quickly. There's a sort of furtive nature to this. Um, The manager, he seems incredibly self-interested. He doesn't seem too bothered about making his master look generous. He's more interested about looking after himself in the future. So I don't think that one makes sense. Uh, Another one that people say is... um, uh, does, the, does the master have to pretend to authorise what the manager's doing in order to save face for himself because it would look really embarrassing if he's completely lost control over his employees? And uh, so he sort of says, oh, well, well done, uh, publicly. But again, it seems like all this stuff, the manager's behaviour is public knowledge anyway. Uh, the boss hears it from other people in verse 2. So I'm not sure that makes sense. Another option people come up with is actually to start saying, well, actually what he's doing, the manager, is to knock off interest that he had originally put on to these debts uh, against the Mosaic law. And he was turning good, suddenly becoming good and knocking off that interest and saying, actually, you don't really owe all that. Um, But then you think, gosh, that's a lot of interest to start with. And also, there's no sense of that here. And there's no sense of the manager suddenly becoming a really nice guy who's suddenly doing the right thing either. And that's the final thing people come up with, say, well, maybe the manager was knocking off his own personal commission on these sales. Uh, But then the commission seems to be huge. And uh, the master still calls him a dishonest manager in verse 8. And as I say, I don't think the manager suddenly is turning sort of into some good guy. Which is why I think going back to what we were talking about at the beginning is quite helpful in that I think what the boss is doing here is commending one aspect of this scoundrel. And what particularly is he commending? He's commending his shrewdness. But actually we can go a little bit deeper than that. Um, We can be more precise than that. I think what he commends is the way in which he uses his resources now in order to prepare for his future. He uses his resources now in order to prepare for his future. Because one thing this manager has got right is he's got a sense of the future. He looks ahead. He has a longer-term vision. And he lives now in the light of the future. And so... um, what I've put under the, the second point, I think this is what Jesus is really getting to in telling this parable, 
is that he uses what will soon be gone for what will last forever. There's your gap fill. Everyone loves a gap fill. Uh, He uses what will soon be gone for what will last forever. This is what the master commends. This is what Jesus commends. Have a look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I think what's going on here is um, in verse 8, that's like the final uh, line in the parable. And then uh, halfway through verse 8, we get Jesus' analysis of it. And what he's saying here is uh, that there is a wider field at play. There is a future which we need to live in the light of. And we can learn something from this dishonest manager. Not his dishonesty. Uh, If you read on in verses 10 and 11, it's pretty clear Jesus is not commending dishonesty. But he is commending this living in the light of the future. He's commending the way in which the, master, uh, the, the, the manager, he uses what will soon be gone for what will last in the long term. And Jesus is saying, if that is true of a dishonest manager, how much more should that be true of the people of the light? In other words, of Christians, of followers of Jesus which is why he says there, verse 9, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Uh, friends for yourselves, not just for now, but friends who will be friends for eternity, who will welcome us into eternity. And it makes sense, doesn't it? And just as with the dishonest manager, he knew that the resources he had, they were finite. He was about to go. He'd been fired. They're all going to disappear. And There's one thing we know about the stuff of this world, of wealth, of money. It is here today. It is gone. Do you notice how Jesus says that in verse 9? When it is gone. Not if it's gone. When it's gone. Wealth resources, it's so tangible, but it will go. It might be disaster that brings that about. Certainly, 2,000 years ago, it could go in just some natural disaster in a fire or something like that. It can just disappear. Uh, It might be theft. It might be today just market changes. It might be just terrible spending. But whatever happens for all of us, it will be death. In the end, we can't take our stuff with us. We will be separated from our stuff. You might have heard... The story of a vicar at a funeral uh, being asked rather inappropriately by somebody uh, who is in the congregation. This is not a story that actually happened to me, just to underline that. But uh, being asked, uh, someone came up to the vicar and said of the person who had just died, whose funeral it was, how much did they leave in their will? Slightly inappropriate question. Um, And the vicar replied, he left everything. They always do. 
which is a very good response, isn't it? We leave everything. We, don't, we, we come into the world naked, we leave the world naked. We don't take stuff with us. Uh, back in, you know, ancient Egypt and pharaohs died and they were given all this sort of stuff to go with them, but it's all just left there. We can't take stuff with us. We know that. But what we have an opportunity to do now is to use what we have now, this stuff that we can't keep, and to use that in a way that will last forever. Now, what does that look like? Practically, this is really practical stuff, isn't it? What practically does that look like? Well, yes, I would inevitably say it does look like giving. It looks like being generous. Uh, giving to God's work, giving to church, giving to other ministries. But I think it's much more than just that. It's much more. It's about how we use our resources, how we use our wealth now to live lives to ser- that serve God well, that uh, honour God in all we do, that invest in godly living. How do we use our wealth for that, how do we use our money now for godly living that will have an impact for all eternity? Uh, it is striking in verse 9 how Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. And actually, if we live generous lives, that is something very attractive, isn't it? And we will gain friends through that way. But there's more than that. I think in verses 10 to 12, we see a little bit more of what Jesus is talking about. He says this, verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? I think there's something here, Jesus is saying, uh, in many ways, how we use our wealth now, our money now, is a bit of a test. And through it, we see how responsible we are, how we can use what is around now, but will be gone in the future. Uh, It's a bit of a test. It shows, it reveals us. Now, um, how do we know what to do with this? We can sort of see that broader point, that that big idea that Jesus is saying here. Use what will soon be gone for what will last forever. Use it to gain friends. Use it to use it responsibly in a way that will impact eternity. How, How do we know what this looks like? And I think, um, Jesus gives us some really helpful teaching that in those final two verses, verses 13, final three verses, 13 to 15. And the, the point he's making here is decide who you will serve. How do we know what this looks like? We need loads of wisdom in how we use our finances day by day by day. There's so many decisions to make. Do we spend? Do we save? Do we give? Do, how do we use it? It's thousands of decisions that's difficult. But Jesus goes right down to the root. And he says, let's get the roots right. The root in our heart right. And here's the challenge. He says, decide who you're going to serve. You've got two options. In your heart, you can serve God 
or you can serve money. You can't serve both. Have you ever been on a lake or in a sea trying to move from one canoe to another? It's a classic sort of post-exam school trip or something like that, and you've got to sort of walk along these different canoes. And try and put one leg in one canoe and another leg in another canoe. What's going to happen? It's going to end up, you're going to end up in the water. You cannot ride two canoes, just as you cannot ride two horses, because they end up going different directions. Uh, if you want to know about that, Martin's the expert on uh, kayaking. He'll tell you all about that, because they'll, they'll just go in different places. And God and money will take you in different places. You can't ride both. You can't have a foot in both camps. You'll serve one or you will serve the other. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. And so decide to serve God is obviously what Jesus is saying here. And yet that is so hard, isn't it? It's just worth, as we close, thinking about how attractive it is to serve money. Money can give us so much stuff. It gives us power. It can give us a sense of control. It gives us agency. It gives us autonomy. It might give us good health for now because we can pay for better health care perhaps. It gives us great pleasures. It means we can do loads of stuff. It gives us safety. It gives us security. All these things in one sense, are, are, are true. We can feel them. And yet, whilst money is a great servant and can be a great blessing in life, it is a terrible master. If you make money your master, it's a terrible thing. It will do terrible things to us. Uh, here are just a few things. If money is our master, what will that do for us? Uh, it will lead to us living a life that's actually full of anxiety and worry. Because we'll constantly, if we have money, be constantly worried about losing it. And if we don't have as much as what we want to have, then we'll be constantly worried about how we're going to get it. And it can just lead to loads of anxiety and worry. A lot of incredibly wealthy people are incredibly anxious people about their money. Uh, if money is our master, it can actually lead to us really misusing people as well. Um, just think of it like this. If you are, get, a, get a, uh, a parking ticket or something like that, it's so annoying getting parking tickets. You think, oh, well, that's such a waste of money. And um, you suddenly sort of think, oh, no, I've just, I don't want to lose that whatever 40 quid there. And there's the traffic warden in front of us. And we start just doing their job. And very easily, we can have a go at the traffic warden because basically, we're caring too much about money. It's just money. And so it leaves us behaving badly to eat people. Uh, it can lead us to being stingy. If we're overly concerned, if money's our master, we can end up just being stingy because we don't want to give it away. We want to keep it. Or it can lead us being too extravagant. Uh, we spend it on things we shouldn't be spending it on. It can lead us to overwork. If, we're, if money's our master, we can just be working and working and working in order to, to, to get money and accrue wealth. 
So money is a terrible master. It's a great servant. It's a terrible master. Whereas think of what God is like as a master. That his burden is light. That his ways are gentle. That serving him is perfect freedom. That making him our master makes us more human. That we can live life and life to the full. You can see how money affects the Pharisees badly in verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money. They heard all this and they sneered at Jesus because they couldn't let go of it. Money was their master. And so they didn't want to follow Jesus. But he knew, he knew what was going on in their hearts, as verse 15 shows us. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? Don't make money your master. You cannot serve both money and God. Resolve to serve God. And how do we do that? How do we do that? We need to first see how much he has served us, how much he has given to us. His riches for us to know all that we have in him. 2 Corinthians 8 9, wonderful verse to go to again and again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In Jesus Christ, we have riches that last for eternity. We have life, we have forgiveness, we have what really matters. And so he's the one we should serve. And so it frees us to use what we have now for the sake of what will last forever. And I think that is what Jesus is commending here in this dishonest manager. Acting shrewdly. Let us be people who are shrewd with what we have. Well, we're going to um, sing. Uh, and one of the band come on up and, and just spend some time dwelling on all that we have in Christ and knowing the riches that we have in him. Uh, but let me lead us in prayer first. Let's have a moment of quiet. Father, would you help us to be shrewd, to be wise, to have that bigger picture, to have eternity in our hearts, in our minds, so that we will use now what will soon be gone for the sake of what will last forever. Give us wisdom is what this looks like day by day, how we use all that you give us for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of others, to enable us to live the lives that you call us to live. And through that, uh, to gain friends for all eternity, to gain responsibility for all eternity. Lord, give us that big picture in mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.